Hey everyone, this is Jason back with you on the BuckoCast, uh, kicking it back up for 2019. This is our first actual episode, and I couldn't think of a better person to accompany me on this maiden voyage for 2019 than Josh Taylor. Of course, you know him from 93.7, KDKA, and his 17 other jobs. So Josh, how are you doing tonight? Well, I got a, a rare night off from all of those jobs. I'm kind of just enjoying myself, and uh, it, it's been... It's been good. It's weird that we're we're weeks away from not only the start of the season, but days away from spring training. This winter kind of flew by, so it's, it's a bit of a surreal feeling right now. Yeah, it's really weird. Like, it did and it didn't, right? Because obviously the team has right. not been very active, but here we are a week away from pitchers and catchers. So, hashtag pitchers and catchers, everybody. And just so you know that Josh is so hyped up for baseball, he's actually doing this podcast appearance near the Mazeroski statue in PNC Park, so... He's fired up. We're fired up. True. Let's get into it. Uh, so, Josh, yeah. the, the, the race here is getting the band back together. Your reaction when you heard the Francisco Liriano re-signed and, and thoughts on that signing? Uh, the first thing that kind of flashed in my mind was A.J. Burnett when he came back. And granted, I think this is a much different scenario. I, I don't think these situations are even the slightest bit similar. But um, I looked at it, and the one thing I thought of is, you know, this is a team that is starting to stock up on guys that are pretty effect that are pretty good when their sliders are effective. And I'm, I'm starting to look at that, and I'm going, okay, we got one left-handed reliever with a good slider. We saw another reliever sign. He's got a pretty good slider. Jameson Tyone is pretty much committing to throwing his slider full-time now. Seems like there's a common thread here. And I'm wondering if that is the common thread or if there's something else we're looking at. But if that is the common thread, I won't argue with it. I'd make the argument, if anything, that they may be a little bit late getting in on the trend. But, you know, it's something that's better than probably we've seen before as far as having common threads among pitchers and what they're trying to do. So I'll take it for what it is. I'm, I'm curious to see what Liriano still has to offer, even as a reliever, even if it's for an inning or two. And if he can get a couple guys to, to strike out and, and swing over that slider in an 0-2 count or in a two-strike count, I'd be pretty happy with it. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head because uh, I looked at things with Liriano and how he's been over the past two years. And the slider, we all remember, of course, from 2013 through 2015. And it started to, to wane a little bit in 2016, but it was still there. That slider led to so many hashtag filthy Frankies on Twitter that it was just something to watch. It really was. It was such a good out pitch, and he could also throw it pretty much any time in the count. And he was a, a two-pitch pitcher mostly with a two-seamer and that slider with the occasional four-seam, occasional change-up. But over the past two years, Josh, I've seen that the slider is just not getting chased anymore. I mean, he's down to like a 10.1 swinging strike rate overall. The whiff for swing on the slider is going down. So, you know, it's hard to say, you know, Ray Sears has forgotten more about pitching than any of us, but what can he and Justin Message really do to get that slider going again? I, I'm struggling to understand what they could do. I, I'd like to think that the thing that made – Liriano's first appearance here so effective was not only Ray Searich, but I think it was the fact that both Ray Searich and Jim Benedict were able to work together. I've always found it baffling that people try to pit Jim Benedict and Ray Searich against each other as if there was a competition between the two. I've always thought that was strange. And when one left, they thought, well, everyone can't do it soon without that guy. I've always looked at it from the standpoint of Benedict was the guy that diagnosed the problem and Searich was the guy that treated it. You know, as, as if to say, Benedict found the leaks and Searich plugged the holes. If, if Justin Message can find that particular issue that Lariano is working on or, or needs to work on, 
and Ray Sears can find the method to help him regain that, then I think that's a positive thing. And I, I, I'd like to think that if anybody can help a guy either regain you know, previous form or at least get back into doing the same habits or doing the same things that he used to do previously when he was successful, I'd like to think Ray Sears is that guy. So that's the one thing that they're looking for as in terms of you know, just do the things that made you successful before or at least try to at least replicate it as best as you can and see where things go from there. I think that's the best way to approach it. That's what I'm at least expecting from their standpoint. Yeah, I like the way you put it. An analogy that I would add to it is, you know, sometimes and oftentimes the doctor that diagnoses you is not the one that operates on you. Exactly. He's not the guy that treats it. He's just the guy that finds it and another guy treats it. There you go. And I think what might help everyone in this scenario is that Justin Message has fresh eyes, right? He came up with the young guys, came up with Tyon, uh, Brault, Kingham, worked with them as they went through the minor leagues. But with Liriano, he'll have fresh eyes and perhaps a fresh voice. We saw, in my opinion, I think it was the most underreported storyline of the Pirates last year was the effect the Message had. And I think that that could work well with Liriano. But you know, now you're getting in the nebulous area of you know, what is he going to be for the team. Of course, he's on a minors deal. Coming to uh, spring training is an invitee, but you know, let's keep it real. He is going to be on the twenty-five man roster. I, I think we can all agree on that, unless he's just absolutely, oh, yeah. yeah, unless he's just absolutely, you know, uh, you know, just in shambles. But so, are we thinking if he's only going to be a reliever, or are we thinking that he'll maybe work himself into that fifth starter, fifth starter conversation? And what's your thoughts on that? If he finds a way to work himself into being a fifth starter in this rotation, I will be absolutely floored. Uh, I'm curious because if, the, if there's one thing that I always seen the plague Francisco Liriano throughout his, his time here, made both good times and bad, he was not able to go deep in the games. He didn't have a lot of starts where he went six innings or more. He probably couldn't get through the line at maybe more than twice, maybe get to a third time through. But, you know, I should say couldn't get through that full second time through, and I think that was something that continued to follow him, and it only got worse over time. So if he is a starter, I mean, if you're looking at really opportunities to, you know, pair him up with multiple inning relievers, then maybe it's not a bad option. If you're talking about using him maybe in a shorter span, I mean, and Alex and I have talked about this quite a bit on my radio show on Sunday mornings, you know, if using an opener is still a thing, maybe Larry is the candidate to be that guy. I don't know specifically, but I'd be stunned, basically, if he became not this starter. I think he'd be, it, just based on what we've seen and based on some of the stuff you've described and how the numbers have gone, I think he'd probably be better suited in a shorter one inning, maybe even two inning, depending on how many lefty bats are going through the lineup that time around. Maybe that kind of role might be the best way to maximize him, but I really have no real clue. And let's talk about the opener for a second because I just want to take a quick side journey here because – so Neil Huntington, who is very measured in every single thing he says to the media, uh, mentioned the opener and then quickly, you know, walked it back a little bit, you know, a couple of weeks later. Do we really think the Pirates will do this? Because lately the Pirates have been one step behind uh, the trends in baseball. Uh, so do we really think they'd get the opener? I mean, what's your gut feel there? My gut feeling is I think they've discussed it. I think they've opened themselves to the possibility of it. But I think it's going to be one of those things where they're probably not going to dip their toe in those waters until they feel it's absolutely necessary. I think it's going to be – I think when he described it, I think when he described it as playing D at Pirate Fest, if I'm not mistaken, it's going to take a lot of things to go wrong. It's going to take uh, Jordan Lyles. It's going to take 
uh, Stephen Brault, Nick Kingham to totally go wrong. If, if Liriano doesn't emerge as an option, like we discussed previously, which I still don't expect, but let's, let's say for the sake of argument, all of those things go wrong. And then they say, well, maybe we should try this out. Or another scenario that I think probably is a little bit more plausible. If we go into the season and you see, you know, a couple of serious injuries, maybe a couple guys in the middle rotation are injured, or maybe, you know, it's a situation where a guy, maybe he's warming up and his arm doesn't feel right, or maybe he pulls a muscle the night before, sleeps weird on his neck, and they say, you know what, we don't have a time to call that guy up. You know, maybe your long reliever did a lot of work the day before, a couple of days before, and he's not available. Okay, let's try this with an opener with this guy, and maybe that's the time to do it. Maybe it's one of those situa- situations where, um, you know, necessity, you know, might have to be the mother of invention. But if that's the case, that's what I expect. Yeah, I like the way you put that. And then, you know, death to the taxi squad, right? I mean, no one, everyone has a trauma, PTSD from Clay Holmes coming up last year for that spot start. Right. So, you know, maybe instead of that, you have a guy who's pitching well. You know, these long relief guys, maybe Brault has been pitching well for a while or Liriano. Go and give it a shot, right? I mean, see what you can do with it and maybe it'll open your eyes, you know. I, I kind of think I could be wrong about this, but I think that's how the Rays happened with it last year. They had to do it once and kind of said, "Hey, this worked." But again, those are the Rays; they make everyone look dumb. So maybe that's not what happened. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a similar situation with Oakland too. I think they had so many injuries in their rotation. I think two of their best guys were out. Sean Mania uh, being one of their top guys. I want to say their top two pitchers in the rotation were both down, and they're like, "Look, we only got so many options." Let's try this and see where it goes and try and not dap them all the way to the AL wildcard game. And they rolled it out one more time to see if it will work. Granted, it did not. But, you know, I credit them for, I credit them for, uh, for failing while daring greatly. But, yeah. yeah, it is one of the situations where it becomes a necessity. Now, here's one situation where if you're talking about Brault or Liriano in that particular situation, I would probably prefer it to be an in-division game because let's not kid ourselves. There are... What if I if I count this correctly? Votto, Goldschmidt, <laughs> Rizzo. You're talking at least three really good left-handed first basemen that you're probably going to face in the first inning. So if there's a time you're going to use those guys, maybe in a division game or two might be the time to do it. That's a very good point by you, Josh. And no wonder you're on radio and TV. <laughs> uh, you'd be surprised sometimes. I hear some strange things. <laughs> I know. I've watched the nightly sports call. Anyway. Um, <laughs> So we mentioned you're the, not wrong. <laughs> we mentioned the okay. I got to ask you a quick question. We got to get off baseball for a second. How awkward okay. is it when you're doing the nightly sports call when you have to have your guest right to the right of you, but they have to look at a certain camera a certain way, and it's it makes the angle look a little different. Then you pull back, and he's like right next to you. Is that awkward? Is it awkward as it looks? It 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 took a little. It takes a little bit of adjustment. I won't lie about it. It also takes adjustment for me to not look at my guest the entire time. You have to go between the. I think there's three different camera views, so there is a little bit of a feeler period where you have to get comfortable with okay, knowing when to look at him and knowing when to look at the camera because there there are some you know some shifts there, and a lot of it is by feel. But yeah, there there is some awkwardness to it at the beginning. It's one of those things you just have to get used to with time and repetition. I'm telling you, you do a great job at it. If it was me, I would be doing a Ricky Bobby and just being a mess. I'd be like, what do I do with my hands? What do I do with my eyes? So you do it well, but I have a Ricky Bobby. Mo- I have a Ricky Bobby moment probably once per show. So you're not too far off. <laughs> That's good. Uh, we, well, you love that. So uh, you mentioned the Rays, and I mentioned everyone. The Rays making everyone look stupid, and one of the ways it looked stupid recently was, if you remember, they were kind of on the forefront of this trend where you know a team signs a rehabbing picture, mm. rehabbing pitcher, excuse me, and 
you know, they let them rehab for a year in their system and then they see where they're at, maybe flip them like the Rays did with Nathan Eovaldi to great effect. And Eovaldi, of course, went on to win a World Series with Boston, very instrumental in that. So if you can tell where I'm getting at, the Pirates tried this with Tom Kaler, uh, Kaler, excuse me, the former Miami starter and reliever. Um, so I'm not going to talk about his stats too much because, to be honest, they're kind of meh. You know, we'll see what they can get with him in terms of how his rehab goes. But, Josh, what I want to ask you is, is this an example of the Pirates being behind on another trend? Why would the Pirates wait to do this kind of deal and not get the guys like Pineda, Ivaldi, uh, and, and guys with more upside than Tom Kaler? That's a great question. I, I've, I've asked myself that question a couple of different times because if you figure, if you look at it from a monetary and risk standpoint, this really fits their modus operandi. Low risk, high reward, this is what you do. And you're playing, not only are you playing low risk, high reward, you're also playing a little bit more of a long game. This is something that may, that may not benefit you this season, but it might benefit you more next season if that's the case, if it's that long of a rehab. But this is really one of those things that should suit them more than anything because if you're not going to go after a big-name free agent, if you're not going to spend a lot of money on guys that can help you now, why not make a little bit more of uh, – uh, I guess it's more of a leap of faith, but a much less calculated risk for something that might help you next year, especially if it works. If it doesn't work, well, you know, it's not that big of a loss. But if it does work, wow, it pays huge dividends, especially if you have a team that's contending, and it might be the thing that puts you over the top. So I, I think it's a, a great idea from their standpoint. But I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I'm, I'm wondering why, knowing what they've done over the years and the fact that low-risk moves tend to be what they do more often than not, this just seems like a missed opportunity. It does, and it, it ties right back in with them holding on to the two-seam fastball pitch to contact for way too long, not not really embracing the high fastball, which is one of the biggest trends of baseball over the past two or three years. So it was just something that caught my eye. We don't need to spend too much time on it, especially when we have some juicier topics to talk about, but it's something to keep an eye on. And I think if you're a Pirates fan listening, you need to pay attention to these trends. Um, the Pirates are falling behind in a lot of areas, and – um, hopefully they recognize that and, and uh, correct that. But today was kind of a um, banner day for baseball fans and baseball writers alike because Baseball Prospectus released their Pakoda projections today. Pakoda is their projection system, very well regarded, eerily accurate at times. So I encourage you to go to BaseballProspectus.com and look at the projections for the Pirates. So we're going to talk about that a little bit right now, Josh. And the team-level projection has them at 81 and 81, last place in the NL Central. And that's kind of curious. It tells you how stacked the Central is. Um, the Reds are 81 81 as well. Um, Cubs are 82 and 80. And to be honest, I don't remember what the Cardinals and Brewers are at right now, but they finished in some version of 1 and 2. So, Josh, first of all, your thoughts on that? Do you think, you know, as we stand on February 7th without knowing anything really, that that could be a plausible outcome in the NL Central? Every team finishing at 500 or above. The Cubs at 82 and 80 is what blows my mind. The, the thought of that, and I'm going, that team? 82 and 80, that team? That, that's really hard to imagine with what they've done. You want to talk about teams that have been eerily silent throughout the offseason. The Cubs have been pretty much radio silent. I think the thing that sticks out the most is what George Contos being signed to a minor league deal. Yeah. I'm like, really? Mm-hmm. But then again, I, I, I caution, and I caution my, my radio producer, Greg Finley, at this often. A quiet feel is usually the most dangerous one. 
Mm-hmm. He's probably collecting himself and then kind of setting pieces in the place. I imagine he is by no means finished getting his team ready for the season. But an 82-80 and 80 Cubs team is just mind-blowing to me. And the thought of this team at 81-81 and 81 in last place tells me two things. One, that this division would be as good as advertised. And two, maybe this team is able to pitch pretty well. If they're going to win 81 games in this division, my guess is going to be it's because they pitch well because it's not going to be because of their offense. Because right now, on paper, it just doesn't make sense to me. However, when you have the on-paper list of Archer, Tyone, Williams, and Musgrove with either Kingham slash Brault slash Lyle slash insert pitcher's name here as your rotation, I feel a lot better about that being the way that they can get the 81 win. So that doesn't bother me. I looked at the uh, run uh, run scored and runs allowed totals. The fact that they would allow fewer, I think it was less than 650 runs scored, that would be a great thing. But the fewer than 650 runs scored, that that's that's what scares me. The runs allowed number, that's great. It's the projected run score number that would scare me, and rightfully so. You look at this team on paper, what this projected lineup is, especially you have a recovering Gregory Polanco. You'd love him to have him back faster than, than is expected. But, you know, with that projected loss, at least starting the season out, and that's not even counting the right. fact that even when he is in the lineup, there are some peaks and valleys with him. That run score, that projected run score number should really scare the crap out of people, and it does with me. It should. And let's talk a little bit about that offense. I'm not going to review every single projection, but some things that stuck out to me. And baseball prospectus, for those who don't know, have their own version of wins above replacement. It's called Warp, and let's talk about that a little bit. So not surprisingly, the usual suspects are at the top of the Warp list for Pirates hitters, those being Marte and Dickerson at 3.1. Then you have Polongo at 1.7, even missing some time to start. And here's what I want to ask about. They have Adam Frazier at 1.6. Now, how close do you think Frazier can come to that figure, Josh? Because he figures to be one of the guys whose performance the, can really dictate how the Pirates season goes. Well, to, for, for starters, you, know, you were listing some of those guys, and to hear Marte at 3.1 sounds right about in his wheelhouse, maybe a little bit below, but it, it this question kind of harkens back to both of the chapters that I helped write for Pirates Guy 2019. One of them being starting Marte, what does he have to do to remain as the Pirates' best player, especially in wins of a replacement? That broke down a lot of things that he's done over the years, and it's been very eerily consistent. When he's played a full season, he's somewhere in between, you know, at the low end, somewhere between three and four wins of a replacement and, and maybe above on the higher end. So that really doesn't surprise me at all. As far as Adam Frazier, seeing that 1.6, I'm probably one of the few people that are optimistic to expect maybe more of a two or above, but it it really all comes down to how much he plays. If he can play a full season, we're talking 150 games, 650 plate appearances, I would probably say a little bit higher than that, maybe closer to the 2.0 side. And if you're able to get that out of Adam Frazier playing second base every day, I feel really good about that if you're able to do that. Now, I have a couple different reasons behind it. Now, I go a little bit deeper in the detail in the chapter called why I was wrong about Adam Frazier. So go pick up Pirates Guy 2019 and, and read it and you'll figure it out more. But one of the things that I think that would contribute to that is a much more improved glove. And this is something that I don't think a lot of people noticed. And it was something that I paid attention to throughout the course of the year. There was one play in particular that really caught my attention. He turned a double play against the Cubs. And I'm going, did Adam Frazier just do that? <laughs> and it really stuck out to me. So I started looking at more things. It, I, I, I mean, now granted, it, it might be a metric that some people don't like. 
But I started using the eye test and saying, wait a minute, let's see how he handles certain situations. And he started making some more difficult and more interesting plays a little bit more regularly. And I'm sitting there thinking, okay. And then I go into the numbers, I go into the metrics after the season, and I'm finding out, wait a minute, he's actually become a better fielding second baseman. So it wasn't really that surprising to me. Now, as far as the specific numbers, I go more into detail in that chapter, so you definitely want to read it and, and check it out. So a little, a little teaser for you there. But I think it improved defense and the opportunity to play every day. When he got the chance to play last season every day when Josh Harrison got hurt, I thought that made a huge difference for him. The comfort factor makes it a lot easier. You get more opportunities, and if you do make mistakes, you're able to correct them and work on them a little bit more frequently. I think that helps him. So from the defensive standpoint, I think it does lend it and push it in that direction. The offensive standpoint, I think, is the thing that's really going to push it over the top. If he's able to hit the way he did after he came back from Indianapolis last season, and the way his numbers just slashed after July on, if he's able to hit at that level where he was hitting among the best second basemen in the game for that stretch of time, if he's able to do that and extrapolate that over a full season, you're talking about a guy that was almost at a full win at that point, just in that small span. So if he's able to do that over the course of, like again, like I said again, maybe 145, 150 games, 600 plus plate appearances. You're probably looking at a guy with, assuming that defense is improved. Like I mentioned, you get both of those things at the same time. You're looking past one and a half. You're looking at maybe two wins. And from that perspective, that's one of those small things. It's not a big, massive push, but it's still a small push that makes you a tiny bit better. Maybe it gets you out of a couple extra innings for your pitcher. Maybe it saves them for another inning, gets you out of a tough jam. If he makes a good play on the ground ball or gets that double play that they might not have always gotten. Mm -hmm. And if that's a little thing, those little edges or maybe an extra base hit or maybe a man to get on base for someone to drive in, I think it does maybe push things in a much better direction. It doesn't make them that much of a better team, but it gives them a small nudge. This is a classy podcast. We waited 20 minutes to plug our book. That's uh, <laughs> Pirate Sky 2019, available now on Amazon, an ebook and paperback format. Uh, prime shipping, so it'll get there quick. Uh and, yeah, I agree with you overall. I think that the hidden benefits that Frazier can give, having those reps a second could be could be big in, 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 the, in the aggregate, maybe not look, maybe not flashy on the score, score sheet or anything like that. But defensively is another place where the Pirates can get some hidden benefits. But hate to tell you guys this, but Pakoda thinks that the Pirates are going to be a mess defensively. Um, now, Baseball Prospectus uses FRAA, fielding runs above average. Think of this as defensive runs saved. Right, it's still uh, getting runs back that you would normally get through good defense. So, you know, pick your own poison, but it's it's good to have a high number here. And listen, up and down the up and down the roster and the Pakota projections, there are landmines all over the field. Uh, Cervelli mm. minus six point nine, Bell minus five point eight. No surprise there. Uh, Dickerson uh, is the best defender, eleven point four. Maybe coasting off of the, uh, and I don't know offhand the. Uh, exact formula Pakota uses, um, but maybe coasting off of that gold glove season and going a little further from there. Uh, and then you have Marte at uh, a modest 2.0. But here's the biggest surprise I saw. They have Young Hill Gong at plus 3.2. I, hmm. I, I struggle to think how they got there because there is absolutely no easy comparable for Gong in his situation. But – that's kind of the overview of the surprises, but the bigger question I have for you, Josh, is how much will this season swing on defense? It will swing depending on, from the defensive side, A, 
who gets some of that time in right field until Polanco is 100% back on the field for himself, assuming that he does not start the season with the big team. I don't know if it's still expected or not. I know he's kind of ahead of his rehab, but we'll, we'll see how that goes. So I imagine whoever gets the, the lion's share of that time in right field will dictate that. Um, I wouldn't mind seeing Pablo Reyes defensively even get some spells out there. That might be some 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 good move there defensively. Even if it's only as a defensive replacement like Dance, I wouldn't hate the thought of that. But um, as far as who gets that time in right field, I'm glad you mentioned Gunn because I'm very, very curious to see what happens at third base. I, I know that they're expecting a lot out of Colin Moran, and it would be great to see him take a leap. But I'm honestly wondering, if we see Gunn get back to the guy that he was maybe three years ago, especially with that bat, and we know that when he's actually at his best, he's a guy that can actually hit in that cleanup spot and perform somewhat well, that might earn him some extra reps at third base, in which case, at least you only have one corner to worry about as opposed to two. If you have Moran out there, you got to worry about a guy on the, the hot corner who has probably a little bit slower feet. Moran's got a good arm. I'll, I'll give him that. But this is something Jack Zarensic, uh, my co-host, uh, doing some Pirates pregame and postgame on 93.7 The Fan. This is something Jack pointed out, and this is a former executive of the year, so I'll take his word for it. Um, he thought Colin Moran had some slow feet. Now, we know he's not the most fleet-footed runner in the world, but just in terms of a stationary position, you know, being able to move quickly towards the ball at the third base position, Jack thinks his feet are a little bit slow, and I, I have to agree with it. I have to pay more attention to it. So if you see more Moran on the field, I think that gets affected a lot. I think if you see more gung, I think it gets a lot better at third base. Josh Bell at first base, you've really got to hope at this point that he started to figure something out because last season was no indication that things were getting better. A couple years ago was his first year at the position. You kind of give him the benefit of the doubt. This time around, you really wonder if it's working and, and if it's really going to pay off the way it is or if he is what he is at this point. And if that's the case, that's a really scary thought. But then there's the elephant in the room. What in the world is going to happen at shortstop? Is it, is it going to be one of the Seinfeld infield guys? Is it going to be Eric Gonzalez? I know they have some really high hopes for him. And he was the guy that was kind of stuck behind Francisco Lindor. So maybe we don't know what he's capable of. But that's really the bigger question mark out of everything. Who is at shortstop? And if your defense is going to be fortified, you'd like to think it has to be fortified at shortstop. I think that's the question that everybody's curious about. And I think all of it really as much as I talk about right field and, and who's at third base, I think a lot of it hinges on who's going to be at shortstop, and that's really going to make the big difference here. If it is Eric Gonzalez and he does turn out to be as good or maybe even better than advertised, maybe afterwards we kind of laugh at this whole situation. Maybe we laugh at this question in hindsight. But until we get a good glimpse and a good clear picture of who's there, it's going to continue to be a, a question mark for everybody, I think. Uh, just to round that out, Colin Moran projected for minus 0 0.4 FRAA. Eric Gonzalez, you know, about plus .7, uh, bouncing around different positions in about 300 plate appearances or about um, 100 games or so. And I agree with you, and I think this really would have been solved if the, if the NL would have just taken the DH like they were threatening to do a week ago now. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I, actually, I think it'll make a huge difference, honestly. I really do. I actually put a quick poll out there. Uh, I'll read it, and then I'll ask you your take. I asked if the Pirates added the DH for this season, who would you want to get the bulk of the time there? I got a hundred, excuse me, a thousand thirty-four votes. I threw out Polanco, Cervelli, Josh Bell won with thirty-five percent of the vote. Uh, just off the top of your head, Josh, mm. who would you most like to put at the DH for the Pirates if it were implemented this season? 
I don't hate the thought of Josh Bell being there, um, but I would put Josh Bell for the majority of those plate appearances, but I would find a day or two where I can slide a Gregory Polanco in there just to ease him back in. I'd find a day or two to slide a, a Gung in there just to ease him back in and let some of these guys that are kind of working their way back get a little bit more comfortable because if you can work a way to get those guys in to be your ninth hitter, you're going to feel, well, not the ninth hitter in the lineup, but you know, the nice hitter as far as the DH is concerned, as opposed to having your normal eight. But if you can have that extra hitter in there, I would prefer to be one of those three guys, whether it's Bell on the bulk of the uh, plate appearances, Gunn getting some of them, and Polanco getting some of them to give those guys a little bit of a breather as they ease themselves back into the lineup. But I don't hate the thought of Josh Bell being the guy because it really gives you an opportunity to work a better first baseman in there. It's it's kind of frustrating with me because I've heard the DH argument back and forth, and if for no other reason, and if yeah. I'm ranting a little bit, forgive me. I got to get on my soapbox here for a second. Do it. If there is a reason for the National League to adopt the DH, I have a couple different reasons. One, it makes the game more uniform. The Major League Baseball is the only league where either half of the league, now granted, all the other you know, leagues either have conferences or divisions or whatever. Major League Baseball is the only pro sport where you have half of the league doing one thing and the other half doing another thing. And we're sitting there going, why is this a thing still? It's 2019. Can we make the league uniform for a change? But let's just try to do one thing the same. Because then you have interleague play, and you've got to play one set of rules when you go to one place and another set of rules when you go to another place. As if we don't already know, it's going to benefit the home team depending on what the rules are on what park you play in. It, it's maddening. Make it uniform act like a professional league. I think there's like two professional leagues on earth that don't use the DH. I think the national league is one. I think the other one might be in Japan. It's, it's mind boggling to me. It makes no sense. Another thing for me is if, if you follow how young pitchers, if you follow their career paths from their youngest years, going into high school, playing on traveling teams, especially the ones that go to college, if you're paying attention to college baseball, there are a lot of pitchers that don't hit in college baseball. Unless they're one of the better hitters on the team, then that guy might hit when he pitches. And maybe when he doesn't pitch, he probably even DHs. Just because the bat is that good and it's that too hard. It's just that good where it's too hard to deny. But for the most part, if you're a pitcher and you're not that strong of a hitter, especially when you get to college baseball, you're getting DHs for in college baseball. So before they even get to the pros, you have pitchers that are being DHs for, some in high school, some on traveling teams. They're already getting DH for because they're trying to preserve that guy that's trying to keep him getting injured and they're trying to keep that arm intact for whatever reason. So now you have that already at the lower levels before they even get involved in professional baseball. And now you get to professional baseball and everything is different? Why? It makes no sense to me. And a lot of it, it's dependent upon which half of the league you break into. It's really just, it really makes no sense to me. The third thing is, why wouldn't you want to see the game be more fun? I. As, as bad as pitching batting averages have become, as bad as pitchers hitting has become, it's not like it was 40 years ago when this was first adopted and maybe there was some hope that there will be some su- 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 uh, sustained performance there. That hasn't happened mm-hmm. over the past four decades. It's gotten increasingly worse. And I hear people go, oh, well, there's the strategy. If there's a pitcher that's, that's pitching well, do you take him out or do you put another guy in the hit for him? Here's an idea. Eliminate the problem altogether and have a guy just hitting and if the pitcher's pitching well, keep him in the game. Why would you want to make an extra decision that you don't need to make? If he's pitching well, pitch him. If he's not, then you don't. Either way, you don't have to worry about it because there's a guy already hitting and it doesn't matter. If you're going to do it, 
make the game better, make the game more watchable. They're they're hard. They're they're having a hard enough time trying to keep people interested. Do what it takes to keep people interested. There, there's so many arguments I can make why why to give the NL the DH because we know the American League's not giving it up. If you're asking that question, you're going to be disappointed if you're expecting otherwise. So if nothing else, make the game uniform. Respect the fact that it's not even happening in most other places and most other levels of the game. And more importantly, make the game interesting and make it fun for people to watch again. I mean, it, it's, it seems like a no-brainer to me. This is the Bucko Cast, and I'm, I'm on with Shannon Sharp. I mean, Josh Taylor of 93.7 The Fan. <laughs> who, uh, I'll take his paycheck. I'll say that Yeah, who just unearthed, unearthed a, a well-deserved rant, and I agree with almost everything he said, and I'll just add my two cents. If you look at the minor leagues even, low ball, I think double uh, A is where they start using the DH. If it's an American League park or National League park, uh, they'll have a pitcher hit. So, you know, it, it's it's really even a further – that's a further level of ridiculousness that they do that even in the minor right. leagues. Yeah. How are these guys supposed to exactly. develop – Yeah, how are they supposed to develop properly uh, when they have to have, you know, not taking the field or anything like that? And I'll add one – And you get to the higher levels and they say, oh, okay, well, yeah, now you got to go hit. You're like, wait a minute. Two levels ago I wasn't hitting at all. Yep. Now i got to just pick it up again? Like, make up your mind. It, it's it's the most confusing backwards and unnecessary thing that you have to deal with. That's just me. Yep. And I'll say one last thing and then we'll move on. I think the Venn diagram of people who uh, complain about the Pirates' slow offseason and the, the Venn diagram of people who uh, are very against the DH would be very interesting to look at because I think a lot of those people who <laughs> are against the DH don't fully recognize how it would help the Pirates, right? So Exactly. And, it, and, and the, the rationale is, well, that's just another player that they wouldn't pay. It, really? I mean – you know what that is to me? I, I call that kind of thinking, I call that the Mitch Hedberg complex. If you remember the old Mitch Hedberg joke, where he says, hey, Mitch, do you want an apple? No, eventually it'll be a core. That, that's really backwards thinking. <laughs> and that's not what you want. Backwards thinking is not effective. Exactly. All right, well, let's get down from our soapbox and, and reel the people back in with talk about. Uh, just one last thing on the projections. We're talking about on the mound now. Tyon and Archer are the guys you would expect to have the highest warp projections, and they are just that. Tyon projected for 2.7. Archer projected for 2.4. Yet the surprise I had there was Trevor Williams getting no respect, uh, projected for just 0.8 after putting up a 2.0 warp rating last year. So, you know, we could probably spend a whole podcast on this topic alone, but how much of a regression candidate do you believe Trevor Williams is going to be? And I'll just start off with us real quick here and give you my take. Uh, one of my chapters in Pirate Sky 2019, available on Amazon.com right now, is that um, Trevor Williams, I kind of myth-busted the common complaints about him, right? People say that he has no velocity, he's not going to be able to maintain it. Well, he works the edges better than most pitchers, pretty much the best on the Pirates starting staff, to be honest. And he gets those calls, he gets weak contact on the fastball. It's all very repeatable in my eyes, but what do you say, Josh? I think the fact that Trevor Williams in his time as a starter, just when he took over, if you remember, Jamison Tyone, uh, they find um, and detect testicular cancer. They're on a road trip. They figure this out, and they say, okay, Trevor Williams has to be the emergency starter. He takes over in Dodger Stadium, and he gets destroyed in that start in May of 2017. Just gets crushed. Ever since then, that first start since then, he has put a stranglehold on a starting rotation job and has been one of the best pitchers, not just on the Pirates rotation, 
not just in the National League, but in all of baseball since he got that opportunity as a starter and hasn't given it up. And one of the reasons why, you described it perfectly, his ability to work the edges, his ability to get weak contact. And if people are very unfamiliar with the the concept of it, I invite you to read a really good book that's written by John Feinstein, legendary writer, called Living on the Black. Great writer. There are two pictures that Feinstein talks about in that book that made their careers off the exact same concept. One of them just got elected into the Hall of Fame. His name is Mike Mussina. The other one is Tom Glavin. These are guys that made their careers off living on those edges and being good strike throwers on the corners of the plate. If there's one thing you look at with Trevor Williams, of course, physically he doesn't look like the biggest, strongest guy. As far as velocity, yeah, he doesn't throw it above 91, 92 miles an hour. But one thing he can do is even if he's throwing it at 91, he's going to locate that thing right on the corner where the where the player might, the batter might foul it off the edge of that handle or maybe get it off the fist or maybe get it down there near the knees where he's going to ground it into a double play. That's what you want out of a guy like that. He's probably better suited for a back-of-the-end rotation guy. Okay, fine. But I'll give him the better opportunity and give him a better chance against another team's four or five any day if for no other reason because of that principle. Because we've seen a couple of pitchers that John Weinstein talks about in this book that made their careers off of it and were really, really good. Now, am I saying that he's that good on that level and can become a Hall of Famer? I'm not saying that. But I am saying he has one trait that he's become really good at that a couple of other guys have excelled at and made great careers out of. And if he can keep that up, I'd be really surprised to see Trevor Williams have anything less than 1.0. I'm probably looking more towards 2.0. I'm looking at him for a repeat that, that same number. If the one thing that does slow him down from accomplishing that, it'll probably be injury in my estimation. Otherwise, if he gets 30 starts, I'm looking somewhere between one and a half and two wins. That's what I would say. And if you pair that up with Jamison Ty on Chris Archer being two and a half or better, that's a good place for him to be right there in that middle group. Absolutely. And I, I think uh, maybe we'll, maybe I'll make a, a segment for each of the podcasts here and call it People Forget. And this week's People Forget goes out to Trevor Williams, who people forget was a second-round draft pick. So it's not like he was mm-hmm. some, you know, diamond in the rough in the in the 30, 30s or something like that. Um, and it's a not, second round pick out of a really good program in Arizona State, by the way. One of the premier baseball programs in the country. Yep, good point. And uh, not bad for someone who was uh, who was traded for an executive, right, who then uh, bounced <laughs> around. Um, yeah, he, he perfectly exemplifies diamond in the rough. He, he's the guy that you didn't expect to show up and be that good. It, it's kind of a grow-next-door type quality. You, know, you didn't really get to notice it, and you didn't really pay attention to it until it was really in front of you. And you wait a minute, we had this all along? And not to mention the fact, and this is totally unbaseball related, Trevor Williams is a quality human being. Quality human yes. being, his teammates love and respect him. I think fans have really grown to embrace him. Um, there are a couple people, in, as far as my media colleagues, that I think are absolutely ridiculous, and I think they deserve to be shamed for it. And I think he, they deserve for him to block and ignore them on social media. So I think it's completely stupid. But I don't think those people even really like baseball. Anyway, mm-hmm. another side rant. But as far as Trevor Williams being a, a total asset to this team, both on the mound and as far as character goes, you're not going to find many guys like that throughout this game that can contribute like that. And I think he's a perfect example of it. Yeah, just uh, you mentioned his character and uh, his makeup, so I'll just mention really briefly that um, you know our our book Pirates Guide nineteen has a forward from MLB Network Radio's Mike Farron, and Mike was very gracious to do that for us. In exchange, we are making a donation out of the proceeds 
to Trevor's charity, Project 34. So I encourage you to look them up and see how you can help. It's a very worthwhile cause and very inspiring. Speaks to his character, like you mentioned. So uh, that's it for Pakoda. Uh, there's a lot more to, to dissect. So uh, feel free to check those out at baseballperspectus.com, and they're free to look at uh, the rest of the site of subscription. But you know, check it out. Um, so each time on this podcast, when we have them, we're going to rip through some text messages and some voicemails. Uh, so we'll get out of here on this, Josh, really quickly. A couple texts to read. Um, so just give us your lightning thoughts on these. First one, uh, my biggest question, this is from Tim. My biggest question going forward is what is the biggest reason for optimism and the biggest reason for depression for this Pirates team? So what's the biggest reason for optimism, Josh? I think we covered a little bit, but to sum it up. Uh, the biggest reason for optimism, if you're looking at just a roster on a piece of paper, if you're looking at the projections from baseball perspective, from baseball prospectus, I'm thinking the reason for optimism is going to be the pitching. If there was something that carried this team in 2013, 2014, 2015, I think the thing that was consistent mostly over that three-year span and the reason why this team was even uh, in striking distance of being a playoff contender, much less making the postseason for three straight years, is because they were a very effective pitching team. That might be the reason for optimism. The reason for pessimism, what happens on the offensive end? Does this team's defense get better like we talked about earlier? And this is the scariest part of all. How healthy can this team remain over time? They're already in a a situation where, I don't want to call it bare bones, but they're going to have to rely on probably the same group of guys they did last year, plus maybe one or two. But if a couple of those guys get hurt, Let's say if Polanco has a setback. Let's say if Gunn never really gets back to form. Let's say if Marte or Dickerson get hurt. Then everything, I think, slides off the edge of the table. So if there's a reason for pessimism, I think it's what if there's injuries on this team and they set things back. And God forbid there's a pitching injury that's long-term. If there's a guy that misses more than one or two starts, especially out of those top four, Ty Archer, Williams, or Musgrove, maybe if Williams or Musgrove get hurt, it might not affect you as much. But, God, if they lose Ty or Archer – for especially for an extended period of time. I think all bets really, really go from the on switch straight to the off switch. Agree. Agree completely. Um, for me, yeah, you have to think the pitching is going to be what carries this team. And I, you know, not to harp on it, not to repeat what you said, but I'm going to say, yeah, the offense, but I'm going to point to two specific, uh, specific scenarios. Number one is I think they have to get something from Colin Moran and Jung Hogong at third, even if it is a platoon at the end of the day. Not necessarily convinced that Gong has to come back and has to be Gong that we saw in 2015 and 2016. But I am convinced that Colin Moran, if he's going to play and get, say, at least 400 plate appearances, he needs to build on his solid start, solid finish to the season last year. Um, so much rides on that. And I say they have to get something from the shortstop position. It cannot be a black hole. You know, I think this year, I think a lot of Pirates fans are going to be like, wow, we really, really underestimated Jordy Mercer, which is weird to say. But if you can count on third, you know, 10 to 12 home runs and 50 RBI from your shortstop uh, with decent on-base skills, that may not have been something you guys should have taken for granted. And I think if they get nothing from the shortstop position, it's going to set them up for failure. Um, just a little, little caveat there. If Jordy Mercer is not hitting eighth for a National League team, is his on-base percentage that good? Oh, well, you know what? You... That's a question for the, for the, uh, for the, D, for the anti-DH crowd. Does Jordy Mercer look as attractive as an eight-hitter if he's not hitting out of the pitcher for the majority of the last few seasons? That's this out. I'll add a little caveat to that. I would love to see Josh Bell from two years ago and not Josh Bell from last season. Yeah, You need 20-plus home run, Josh Bell, 
not you know around the dozen home runs out Josh Bell. That's not going to help your offense. That guy in the middle of your lineup is going to have to be more productive. You cannot have a, a four-hitter that's not helping you drive and run consistently. Now, and I don't want to sound too cliche, but he has to have some element of power that's more consistent and more productive and it looks more like his rookie season than it does his sophomore season. Agree completely. Uh, moving on, the next test, next text, text, excuse me, is from Justin, and uh, just playing out, you know, flat and simple. He asks, "What percentage chance do you give the Pirates to make the playoffs?" Justin's going with twenty-two percent, eight percent to win the division. You know, I don't know, uh, Josh. I really don't know. I think at this point, there's so many variables on this team, so many question marks. You know, I think if they're in striking distance in July, I think that's a win. Uh, what's your take? Uh, Justin and I are not too far off. I say 20% to make the playoffs, 5% to make the division or to win the division. I, there's so many question marks as far as the defense that we talked about. Um, the offense, there, there's so many things that would have to go right. So many things that would have to either meet or exceed the expectation for those things to get better. And once again, the injury buck, it, it still lingers back there it's kind of like the thing in the back of my mind what if one or two guys and the wrong one or two guys get hurt there's a lot of things that could go wrong that probably outweigh the number of things that would need to go right and that's the thing that scares me so i'll say 20 percent to make the playoffs five percent to win the division you know on on the surface i don't necessarily disagree with anything you were justin said but i keep going back to the fact that look at the team the pirates are going to be directly competing with for a wild card even we're talking about the mm-hmm. Mets, Nationals, Braves, Phillies, and that's just the NL East alone. Um, yeah. Yeah. They, and they, the Phillies just got really, really good. Yeah, they just got Real Muto today. Uh, so it's going to be tough that the teams they're directly competing against got marketably better. Um, so that's going to be tough. But moving on, uh, we could not get away from this podcast without a question about payroll, so let's get it over with. Um, another Tim, different Tim asks, this is the lowest the Pirates' payroll has been since 2011. Could we possibly see it go lower with them trading Cervelli and or Marte? It's hard to swallow since this is the first full year of the young arms coming together. Uh, listen, we don't have to spend too much time on this. The Pirates' payroll is what it is. I don't think it's going to get much lower. Um, I, at this point, they haven't dealt Cervelli yet. I don't think they will. What do you think, Josh? I don't think he's going anywhere either. I thought if he was going to go anywhere, anywhere it was going to be the Boston or L.A., those are the two teams I really liked him the most. Those were the two teams that probably could have used him the most as far as building what they've built. I don't think that was – I don't think there was any other possibility other than those two teams. So when that didn't happen and when the Dodgers brought Russell Martin back, I'm like, all right, Cervelli's so staying here. So I, here's another thing to, to throw out there. Don't be surprised if we see more Francisco Cervelli at first base over the course of the season. I still think that might be a thing. So expect that to maybe be worked in there. And I think that's where he could be a lot more useful. So I don't expect Cervelli to go anywhere. However, if things go south fairly quickly and stay that way for a prolonged period of time, you might hear Starling Marte's name mentioned again. We heard some talks with him and the Dodgers, and, of course, they ended up going out and signing A.J. Pollock for $55 million, which I think, honestly, might be a move that becomes a huge bargain move. If A.J. Pollock is anything close to what he was before he got hurt, that becomes a really big bargain move for the Dodgers at $55 million for multiple years. However, um, if things go south for the Pirates quickly, maybe Starling Marte becomes a guy who gets discussed and gets moved. Gets moved, And, yes, it, it probably does decrease. But here's another thing. You have a couple guys whose salaries are coming off the books. 
Cervelli's salary that comes off the books, Corey Dickerson's salary that comes off the books. So one way or another, this payroll is going to plummet anyway. Just because you have a lot of bigger salaries for veteran guys whose contracts are up, and they're going to come off the books anyway. So one way or another, your payroll is bound to plunge. And Now, granted, yes, there's going to be arbitration-eligible guys, so it steadily goes up. But here's the gift when you have young talent that's either pre-arb or arbitration-eligible. It frees up that opportunity to plug those holes with guys from free agency. It's how Theo Epstein was able to do it over years. That's how he built the Cubs so quickly from what he had them in. Within five years, you saw what he did with them. I guess they had some pretty good prime talent that they spent on, but they also had some really good young talent. I believe this past season he had five first-round picks on that 25-man roster, and they were each of his first picks as general manager. When you're able to build young talent, that's cheap by comparison, and then plug the extra holes with guys you get in free agency. Maybe if you do spend top dollar on them or maybe something close to that, it does kind of even things out and make it a little bit easier to put together a decent payroll. But I think this team's payroll is going to be so much lower by the end of the season anyway, just with the salaries coming off the books. I think the trades will just speed that process up instead of you know keeping it from being inevitable. Yeah, I want to add just a couple quick things. Number one is that Frank Cooney with his infamous comments at Pirates Fest about the arbitration coming up, he's not wrong, and he's not necessarily tone deaf either. But what he is wrong about, or the Pirates in general are wrong about, is that if that's true, and I, I will take that at face value that it is, the Pirates are going to get absolutely uh, crushed in arbitration over the next couple of years, then this is the year to load up on one-year contracts. We're looking across the league, and mm-hmm. guys are signing for pennies on the dollar um, for one year, two years at most, maybe one year in a club option. This is the year to do it. Deal them at the deadline if you are out of it and have a lot of assets. So that's number one. Number two, to the people who are fixated on the payroll, and I agree that it's a little frustrating, but what you really need to be fixated on is, once again, here I am talking about the Rays making everyone stupid. Instead of wondering why the Pirates can't spend more money, wonder why the Pirates can't rebuild on the fly like the Rays have done. Listen, the Rays traded away uh, their best pitcher. They traded away Corey Dickerson for Daniel freaking Hudson at the beginning of last year. Um, they're making other moves to really, to the point where they have one player, I believe, and I think it's Kevin, well, they did sign Charlie Morton, so they did do that. But before that, they had one player who's making above the league minimum. So, and they're doing it well. They have talent. They won 90 games in the AL East. The Pirates need to be able to rebuild on the fly like the Rays did. So that's my two cents. Let's get you out of here on Josh. Let's get you out of here on this one, Josh, because I didn't mean to keep you this long, and you're you're still in the car, so... Just a, just a one-letter answer. Uh, Tanner wants to know on the text line, grade the offseason for the Bucks. What's your grade, Josh? Um, is there any other way to give him anything above a C? I, I guess I'm going to give him a D. I, I can't give him a failing grade because, you know, that means they did absolutely nothing. They didn't do absolutely nothing. They came close to doing absolutely nothing. So I guess the default is to give them a D for default and – I'm one of those people that thought that there were guys out there. There are still guys out there. There's more than 100 free agents out there. You probably could get one on a one-year contract that's modestly priced. Maybe they're waiting until March to do so. I'm not sure. But then again, the rest of the league is probably waiting until March for the market to soften a bit. But there had to be a move or two that could be made. There had to be a trade or two that could be made. Under normal circumstances, if other teams are already doing things, I would say, okay, well, the pool is probably a little bit smaller for the Pirates. You're probably going to have to ever pay a little bit extra, and the guy's going to have to want to come here. 
But this is an entirely different scenario. And there are different players around the game that notice this, and they're pointing this out. Now, there are so many free agents still on the market that you're thinking, there's got to be a guy that you can give a modest one-year deal to. A guy like a Dallas Keuchel wouldn't have been a bad idea to give a one-year deal to at maybe $9 million or $10 million to yep. get, bring that guy and have, give him one good year. I'd like to think something like that's not crazy. Now, granted, once again, the guy has to want to come here. This isn't like on MLB The Show where you just hit the X button, he becomes a member of your team. He still has to say yes. I, I, I say it all the time. Signing free agents is just like dating a woman. Doesn't matter if she doesn't say yes. Doesn't matter. <laughs> Everything else is just dreaming and speculation. Unless she agrees to go out with you, you are just sitting there and like the temptations is just your imagination. But at the same time, there's such a deep pool of guys that there had to be one or two that probably would have said yes to this team, would have liked the opportunity, even if it's just to resurrect their career for on a one-year deal. If it's a Matt Joyce-type situation, there had to be a guy out there that probably could have made this team better. Yeah. Man, i got to tell you, I wrote that down immediately. That is a phrase for the ages. Then you followed it up with a Temptations reference. You are ready for a podcast season, aren't you, Josh Taylor? <laughs> I'm always ready for podcast season. There's <laughs> one thing I'm always ready to do is talk about baseball, even in February. Yeah. All right, so – that's that line's gonna stick with me for a while, so I'll just go ahead and give my uh my grade. I'm gonna say a C minus. So I'm right almost there with you. But I like the value signings of Jordan Lyles. I think that's an underrated signing. Look up his curveball. I think that's the one thing keeping him from being an F for me is Jordan Lyles. I think that's the one thing, honestly. Yeah. I think he'll surprise, I really do. Uh but for many of the reasons you said, I do agree with you. And after fifty five arduous minutes of off season talk, that's that's it for the preliminary episode of the relaunched bucko cast i want to thank you for listening josh where can people find you on twitter um twitter instagram facebook josh taylor hd that's where i am most of the time is spent on twitter maybe the second most on instagram oh do it for the gram right gotta do it for the gram i don't do it as much but yeah all, all three platforms josh taylor hd all right check him out please he's uh one of the best baseball minds in the berg and Happy to have him. Thanks, Josh, for joining us on the Bucko Cast. Always appreciate you, brother. Good times.